0: Welcome to Conversations and Grief, a podcast from Anamkara, an organization set up by bereaved parents to help themselves and all bereaved parents cope with their grief and loss and journey on. I'm Sam whelan Curtin, and in this podcast series, we'll be hearing from parents as they share their own unique stories of their children and their journey through grief. In this episode, we will be talking about the experience of a sudden loss with Colette as she speaks to us about the death of her daughter, Sarah. Welcome, Colette, and thank you for being with us to share your story and talk to us about Sarah. Can you introduce us to your family and tell us a little bit about Sarah?
1: My name is Colette and I'm from Cork Um married to Tom. And we had one daughter, Sarah, she's an only child. And Sarah was 19 and she was killed by, in a collision with a drunk driver. She's next April. She'll be ten years gone from us. Sarah was, I suppose, a typical what people would call a dumb blonde, because she was so blonde. She was so beautiful, but she was anything but dumb. She was clever. She was, she was just a beautiful, beautiful person. She loved animals more than she loved people. I have to say that. She got on better with animals. She was thrown off a horse when she was horse riding, and I was like, the horse should be put down. And she nearly killed me. She was like, it's my fault, I fell off. I didn't hold on properly, this was the way Sarah was. She took her dogs out walking, and she came back one day, her fingernails were black. I'm like, they weren't even our dogs, they were my niece's dogs, and I'm like, what the hell? And She said, we were in the forest in the next town, in Middleton, walking and I found a dead fox and I had to bury him. And one of the dogs was totally off the wall. He was mad. He wouldn't sit still. He was and I said, What what did he do? Like, you know, snowy did he run away on you? Did... No, she said. I told them what I was doing and they sat next to me while I buried him. So that sums up Sarah to me. She was just a beautiful, beautiful girl. She was training to be a hairdresser, but her ambitions just changed. She was going to go into the army. She was going to be a doctor. She took a job in Hillfigure. She wasn't going to do anything else. Then she decided I'm going to be a hairdresser. She was in a training academy when this happened. She started in February and she was gone in April. You know what? I think it was the worst experience of my life. When I was younger, we thought I couldn't have children. I'd have a few health problems. And so Sarah was planned from well before she was born when we decided okay let's do what the doctor's saying let's try and Sarah was so planned and I thought that was the hardest part of my life you know and we weren't given a choice as to how she was going to be born we were told everything was I spent every day of my pregnancy in the hospital in London when they left me out after a few weeks and said okay if you come in every day to have the baby's heart checked and to check your own and I used to go every single day to the hospital and I thought that was the worst thing ever. They told me she could be born with difficulties. She, one of the things they told me was she could have a cleft palate, which, okay, I could have, I said, that's okay, that can be fixed. And when Sarah was born, she was so perfect. And I really thought that was the hardest part of my life And when Sarah came. And then it was the day she died. Then I realized, wow, that was the most devastating thing, I think, and the suddenness of it. She left home laughing at her dad. You know, he was killing her because she had no petrol in her car. And it wouldn't start that morning. I had driven her to college and collected her. And it's just, he, I'd given her 50 euro on the Wednesday to put petrol in. And when her car wouldn't start and he'd say, I better try it because she was on the floor the next day for her first day in the salon. And he said, otherwise I'd have to get up at six in the morning. And he fixed her car as he thought, he was trying everything and he looked and he said, no petrol. And she was laughing, shouting at him, fill it up, Dad. And I was kind of, I gave you 50 euro, Mum, I had to buy a mascara, so I threw a tenner in the car and I forgot to tell you. That was Sarah all the time. Off she went laughing down the stairs. And when we got that call, my whole life just, I, I, I think my life actually ended. If you know, well, that life did end. Afterwards, I felt we were on our own. We There was nobody. When we came back from the night that crash. we came back from the scene. And we were in our apartment on our own. We were in total shock. We didn't know where to go, what to do, who to contact. My sister took over the funeral arrangements. I never had anything like that in my life. It was my first time actually having to deal with and to have it to be my child. I found it horrendous. After the funeral, and then we had to wait for the ashes, when we buried the ashes, and we closed our door. We were really on our own. Even my family and Tom's family, they were afraid to come near us, I think. Cause they didn't know how to cope, what to say, what to do. And Tom, he was really, really struggling. And I thought, if I don't do something here and try and pull myself back, life is over. And then my Sarah, sure... She was 19. She lived, we had her for 19 years. She deserved to be remembered. She deserved that we live for her. And from, I think from that day, I decided, okay, the shock of this has to leave. Nothing is going to change. She's not coming back. I used to think she was coming back. We used to go on holidays and I used to be like, that's grand now. We're on holidays. Sarah's at home. I'd come back, I'd put the key in the door and then it would hit me. That was my coping skills. I had no one to talk to. I couldn't talk to my family because if I did they'd start crying and I end up saying, You're all right, don't be worrying. You know, they didn't mean anything but really and truly and I'm, I know now this'll sound cold, but people are heartless because they worry about how they feel. It was always how I'm sorry, I feel so sad, I'm sorry about this, I can't cope. And I'd be sitting there going, You can't cope. <laughs> I started I went for mindfulness classes. I before Sarah died, I would have been very I suppose blunt at times and abrupt I would say if you were talking crap I would tell you you're talking crap now I don't I knew I had to change everything because I would have had nobody at all because I would have been like Sam what are you talking about why are you sad it's I'm the one that should be sad and you can't because people don't mean it so I went for mindfulness classes I did all this and it really helped me change my train of thought and Now, I decided then, I said to Tom, we live for Sarah. Everything we do, we do in her memory and we keep her alive. And I tell you now, it's 10 years next April. And when I meet people today, they can talk to me about Sarah as if she's here. Sometimes I think they're thinking I have no feelings. But it was my way of coping was throw myself into being busy, 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 busy. And I didn't want it just to be all about work, I wanted it to be about my child. And she was my child, she is my child and she will, always will be my child. And I'll never let her be forgotten.
0: And telling your story here is such a powerful way of remembering Sarah and supporting other parents. I'd like to ask you about the experience of the suddenness. Grief and loss can happen in so many ways, whether long illness, an accident... This was so sudden. And before we started, you mentioned the emptiness in the aftermath. Can you talk to me about all that?
1: I think the emptiness is the thing, that gnawing in your tummy, that you're sitting there, you have the silence, a a, a home that was always noisy with music or running up and down the stairs or friends, and then it's all gone. The suddenness of that, I think, is... It's it's actually quite scary. And I think sometimes I used to lie awake at night and I'd be just praying for noise. Just something to happen to let me, you know, break this dreadful it, it just happened so fast it's I, I don't know how to describe it to be honest with you. I now since then I have I have realized in my own heart that when you say some people their bereavement, their children are sick for a long time. I now consider myself very, very lucky. Wow, if Sarah was up in hospital suffering for months, knowing she's still going to die, if there was hope, I would have probably been a different, but of them know their children are going to die. And I think the suddenness now, 10 years down the line, was the better way for the child. How awful does that sound?
0: I understand. As you move through it, you look back and have those moments. At the time you were telling me, you get the phone call, you don't know how to react. You're trying to make choices and decisions after something so sudden has happened. You were saying yourself and your husband reacted very differently. And all those choices you were trying to make at the time. Tell me about that.
1: Well, we did when we went out to the crash scene. We were lucky they had her in the ambulance. She was dead. They had been working on her, the doctor told me. For about 40 minutes, he told me he worked on her. Again, now I found that very hard to believe because it didn't take us 40 minutes to get there. But again, we were never given proper timings or anything, so we have to live with that. But when we did, Tom was in a very bad way out there. He was how actually howling. And my, I suppose, my survival mechanism kicked in and I was again the one saying okay you've got to stop that now I had looked at my child her eyes were okay and my child's story came through her eyes and when I saw that I got a bit of peace and they hadn't even closed her eyes which again I always thought they would close your eyes the minute you die and I think that was a sign for me and when we came out I started looking at the crash scene Tom was just in bits and they asked do you want to go to the morgue We decided we didn't. I asked him, no, I don't. I said, no, we're not going. Okay, so the ambulance is going to head off. I said, yeah, no bother. They went off one way to the city Cork. We went back to Cove five minutes from our home. And we just got in home and my niece had been driving us. And Tom said, after a few minutes, I actually want to go to the morgue. So our decisions had changed from literally within 10 or 15 minutes. I said, okay, we'll go to the morgue. We rang my niece, I said, you need to come, we need to go to the morgue, he can't drive. Yeah, okay, no problem. We went up to the regional hospital in Cork where the morgue was, got in. They, they were very nice to us now and very good, but came back and said, unfortunately, there is nobody here to let you into the morgue. You had decided you weren't coming up and that was relayed to us, so... And I was like, "Okay, that's fine. And again, Tommy couldn't accept that. His thing was, my child is in there on her own. It stays in our mind, the decisions that we made at the time. You only have split seconds to make your decisions. But she was rolled in there, obviously, on the trolley out of the ambulance and left there. Whereas I think if we had been up there, maybe we would have said, no, we're staying all night. We don't know. I don't know whether that would have been our right but we couldn't get in to see our child and that was literally a half an hour to three quarters of an hour after we saw her dead in an ambulance because we made the wrong decision on the spur of the moment.
0: Trying to make decisions in such suddenness it, it sounds impossible.
1: Well you know at the time you will make your decision you have to make a decision that's it they call it full stop you make the decision when you're making decisions at that in all that emotional upset. There's, there's nothing else. Nothing else can like you can't have a harder decision to make in life than to make the decisions at that particular time and when and when things are sudden. I the suddenness of it. Yeah, you, you can't go back on your decisions. That's my thing on that. You can't go back. You know, it's I that night I remember I wanted to know the next morning. I said I wonder was there a priest there because I didn't see anyone. Was she anointed? And I couldn't get answers to that. I still haven't got an answer to that 10 years down the line. And I just, all these, again now it was so sudden I didn't ask at the night. I didn't look. I didn't do. I assumed. So know the suddenness and the decisions you make, they can be wrong. And sometimes there's no going back on them, which is even worse.
0: You were talking about the days that follow, throwing yourself into the busyness of the funeral and then there's the time after that. Can you tell me about moving from those early days into the longer term journey with the grief?
1: The first year I sailed through. I can still see in my eyes right now when I close my eyes, I can see my child lying there in her Debs dress in her coffin. I can see the makeup they had on her, her, eyes were wrong, and I'm calling my sister in to fix them. And now when I think of it, I'm like, oh, my God. You know, I, people were coming in and I was smiling and saying, hello, thanks for coming, like it was a party. I, was, I didn't cry because in our house we were always told, don't cry. Keep your tears for private. I cried and cried when I got home on my own. I cried when I was lying with Sarah that night when she was at home. In my, it was in my sister's house, we had to wake her because we were in an apartment. And I got through, they did all the organising. All I did was lay down the rules, no drink at her funeral. Anyone with drink that comes up to the house were not to be admitted, off you go. So my own family included, no, you don't come in, come back tomorrow. And. <clears throat> It carried me through. I smiled, I laughed. We told jokes about things that happened, looking at her in her coffin. I got up every three mornings, I put my makeup on. I picked out my black, what black will I wear today? It was like, it was autopilot. We. I walked to follow the coffin to the church. I did everything that I wouldn't normally, don't know how I did it. I don't walk, I can't walk very, very far. And I did it at the funeral, didn't even think. I don't know, it was all a blur at at the time. But right now I can go back to all those times and think, How oh, the hell did I, what was I doing? Second year. So people will realise, oh, I was like, what the hell, I think. Then you're starting to realise this is real. Second year was my worst. Third year was, some days were good, some days were bad. But I never ever let it get on top of me. I have to say now, if I wanted, a, they say a duvet day, I'd have one. The next day, I'd be saying, no, "I'm not getting up again," and I would push myself, because I thought, "No, I can't go down this road. If I do, my child's life was in vain," and that's what got me through. Busy, I worked twenty-three out of twenty-four hours a day. I'd say I was working. You know, I still don't sleep a full night. I was. yesterday morning in my office, which is attached to my apartment. I was in there making candles and cards because I couldn't sleep, but I don't lie there. Because that's where the trouble comes when you lie there. All the what-ifs will come into your head. I don't allow the what-ifs anymore. But I can cope an awful lot better now. And I find people can cope with how they deal with Sarah's death around me a lot better. I still have the same pain inside me, but I portray it differently. So they think, oh, that's great, she's grand now. But I have to accept that, that's human nature. They're never, ever, unless you walk in my shoes, you're not going to feel the pain that I feel every single day. But mask it. We have to mask it. We can't be going out crying. And and life has to get better for every parent or else their child's life was in vain, in my eyes.
0: Grief is unique to everyone. Every experience is different and every person is different in how they experience it. But can you tell me about how over time the journey, it's been 10 years. What has that journey in grief been for you?
1: The journey has changed me so much that silly thing like I wear black every day, but I feel I owe it to my child in my grief journey. And yeah, the same house. My husband, he loves his colours. He loves, and that has never changed for him. But he now respects. At the start, he was saying, and my family sent me, "Ah, yeah, you should try it." different. oh look, there's a lovely red dress there. There's a, and I just stuck to my guns because in my head, it's a totally mad thing to say. In my head, I'm closer to my child in my black, and yet I'm still living, and I'm not disrespecting her life. And that's where the grief, the journey of grief is so, so different. People get mad notions. I know friends with mad, mad notions as well, as I would call them, and they call mine a mad notion. That's how we cope.
0: And tell me about that going on. You describe living for Sarah as well. Is it a different life than you had before?
1: We call, I call it now the new norm. People say with COVID, oh, I can't wait to go back to normal, and I smile at them. Because in my head I'm just saying, and I don't say it to them, but I say, what do you call normal? What is normal? I thought my life was very normal when there was me, Tom and Sarah. We had a really good life. She lived her life to the full. We had, hol- we had everything. We worked really hard, but we had everything. We gave her a great life. We were happy. So when Sarah was gone, sure. We had holidays, but we don't even know where we were because we it was to run away holidays. That's how we say now. It was running away time. That's all we did. We didn't spend much time at home. We ran away. Don't know how we still had jobs really because. But I think they knew when we were there would give us. But that journey again now, as I say, it's. And everyone, yeah, everyone does do it differently, but. The going on is just, I, I don't call it anything normal. I just say, yeah, I'm existing. But existing in a way that I'm making good use of my time, but always in Sarah's memory.
0: You've reached out for support through things like Anamkara. Can you tell me about getting support in this journey and what that's meant?
1: At the start, I didn't know where to look for support. We went on the internet and we put in parents whose only child has died, who can help us. And that's how we used to look up things. And then Tom is a bus driver and a tour guide out in Blarney Castle heard about Sarah's death. And obviously he had connections himself. Tom still doesn't know who it is. I said, don't don't go looking for him, you know, because this man handed over and he gave a bus driver. He said, well, you give that to that guy that lost his daughter? Anam I'm Cara's pin. Tell him, contact them. And Tom came home and he was saying, and again now, my thing is, I do it on my own. I felt I didn't want anybody, you know, like I was saying, my family pushing them in a nice way, but... And I was like, sure, I'm not doing anything about that if you want it. Good luck. You know, go and deal with it. And he did deal with it, and he went off and he made a phone call. And he came home and he said this woman was going to meet us, and she's from Middleton, which is... I said, I'm meeting no one, so go away and meet who you want. There's nobody can help us, you know, and that was my thing. And again, now, if I was outside and someone said, How are you getting on? It's oh, great. And if they ask, Have you support? Oh, everyone is marvellous. Inside in our own apartment, this is how we, we speak our truth. And I was like, Go away, I have no interest. And he said, No, I'm not meeting her on my own. And again, my on my grief journey, I'm like, well, that's your own business. Good luck, then forget about it. But then, as the weeks were going by, and I was looking at him, I was saying, that's not really fair. If we're to survive this, he's her dad, we have to help each other. This was my thing. And I decided, I said to him, okay, ring them up. I'm not meeting anyone now, but ring them up and see when they're meeting us. And he rang, and it was in September. They were back in Silver Springs in Cork. I said, "Okay, I'll go to the meeting with you, but I'm only going to one. Then you'll be in there. You can go yourself." I really thought he wanted it, and I'm going. I'll go. And he said, "Okay, that's grand." So we came out from the first one, and I was like, "Never again," because it brought it all. All I did was cry. And the next month, uh, he said, "Well," and I said, "Okay, I'll go with you for this one, and then that's it. Definitely, Tom. I have no interest, but." I had been thinking to myself, I was crying, and I get embarrassed over that even, because that's not how I'm, I suppose it's all in the rearing, whatever, but I said, okay, I cried my way through, you sat and you didn't open your mouth, what's the point really? And then I was thinking of it after and I thought, but nobody said anything to me, and yet there was, I think there was a cup of coffee put in front of me, I don't even know whether Tom got it or somebody else got it, I think someone else got it for us, he doesn't know either. And... The facilitator said, if you need to talk, I'm like, no, no, we're fine at the end. I was like, let me out of here. And I thought as the month was going on, no, they were actually okay. I'll try it again. But I put it to Tom, I'm trying for you. And 10 years later, we could not have survived. We know that now without the support of those parents. Because when we go into that room and that door closes, Everyone in that room are walking in our shoes. We can all swap shoes because we're all doing the same journey. Nobody is judging you. If you're laughing, they're not judging you. If you're crying, crying, they're not. I remember saying at the meeting, the first time I laughed, laughed without thinking of Sarah. I was for about a week afterwards, maybe even longer. The guilt, I couldn't cope in my head. I was like, I was like a zombie at work. I was coming home in the evening I was just going in and throwing myself on the bed watching telly because I couldn't cope. What right had I to laugh when my child was dead? Now I can laugh every day and I can be telling her, i say, wait till I tell you, because I talk to her all the time, and I can laugh now, guilt free, but for this first time I laughed and I was able to say that at Cara and be told, oh, I felt the same, oh my God, I thought I was the only one and straight away I was like wow so that's my that's our new norm but with a group like Adam Cara that's your new norm
0: Tell me a little bit about connecting with Sarah that continuing bond you have with her you mentioned talking with her it sounds like you connect with her memory in lots of different ways and all the time
1: She's just a part of my life and I know she's dead I can say the word dead because it's It makes it real to me. Another mum that I know, she said she shivers every time, but she said, I can't say my son is dead. I can't use that word in the same sentence as him. I have to because it makes it real. And that's how my journey is. But real, but in a sense, I can see her right now. I can't be remembering, like, some parents are very lucky. They can remember back to, oh, the first day in school. No, I can't. I remember because again I would like so you have to go to school now, so and she's like yeah okay, you know and if she cried on the day they were sent me, you're probably the only mum at the school who didn't cry. I'm saying but sure this is life. You know and unfortunately we have to accept what's thrown at us in life and make the most of it. We have no control over it. You know so no she's just part of my life and that's it whether she's here or in heaven.
0: Thank you, Glad. The parents listening to this, they may be early in their grief or further along. What message would you like to share with them, particularly in relation to having a sudden loss? What would you want them to take away from the story you've shared?
1: The most important thing is to realise there's nothing we could have done about it. We couldn't prevent it. Definitely you do need support. I realise that now. If I hadn't had, I don't know how I would have the first few months Yeah. I was always tough in my life, but I wonder would I have held up without the support of Anamkara. It's only when I met those parents that I realised, wow, they actually get me. So I think the support. And I looked to somebody, I always, in any the group when I went in, I looked to the strongest person further down the line from me. And if you're looking okay and I see the pain behind your eyes, because you're in the same shoes as me, but you're coping. And that's the person I followed. And I said, if she can do it, I can do it because she loves her child the same as I love mine.
0: Thank you for sharing your story with us, Colette. And we dedicate this episode to the memory of Sarah. We know the power of hearing the stories of other parents and how this can help in navigating the journey of grief. Adam Carr provides information, resources and bereavement support after the death of a child of any age and through all circumstances. They hold regular group meetings and information sessions in the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. You can find out more by visiting www.anamcara.ie, or you can call +353 1 5378, or from outside Dublin, 085 888 and if calling from Northern Ireland. We would like to thank all the parents who have spoken to us and shared their stories for this podcast series. Thank you for listening and be kind to yourself.